Good morning, church family, and welcome to worship today. We are Bradfield and Ruffin Baptist Church. People call us BRBC, and we are a church that loves Jesus together, and we want to help other people to do the same. And today, I am just so thankful that no matter the difficult circumstances that we seem to be in, God accomplishing that mission is not hindered. Whether we meet in person or online, um, he is always working to accomplish that mission of helping us to love Jesus more and uh, to introduce people to him. We're so thankful. So if we haven't met before, my name is Emily. Um, I'm a member at BRBC, and I'm just so glad to welcome you to worship today. We're continuing on in our series in the book of Esther, and a little bit later on in the service, Peter will be walking through chapter 3 with us, so we're really looking forward to that. Well, it is time for our Bible reading, so if you have a Bible handy, then grab it and turn to Esther chapter 3. That's where we'll be reading from today. It's Esther 3 verses 1 to 15, and if you don't have a Bible handy, that's fine. The words will appear on the screen right next to me as well. So Esther chapter 3 starting in verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces, with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. 
A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Good morning, everyone. Well, today as we jump in, a question for you. Can you think of a time when you were in the right place at the right time and things just happen to just fall into place? Now, in the past, I've called these hinge moments. When you sort of, your life seems to change course at a small juncture in the road that you just happened to stumble across. Well, I've told the story before, but when I was in university, I had stayed up the night before and I was really tired. I woke up, I was heading to class and I thought, I'm just going to go back to bed. So I turned around to go back to my dorm, but I had a second thought, you know what? I think I really should be in class today. I don't know how many cuts I have left to take. So I turned back and went to class. And it just so happened that that one day in class, there's an opportunity given to us and presented of going to England for post-grad study to do an internship. And it just so happened that it piqued my interest, which led me to Liverpool, which led me to Suffolk, which led me to this moment right here that we're experiencing together, that one day, because I decided not to sleep in and skip class. Maybe you have similar co coincidences that have happened like that in your life. Um, the day you met the person that you married, or when a job opportunity appeared in this inconsequential conversation that suddenly came, or when you happened to stumble across a stranger who became your best friend. We all have kind, different kinds of names for these happy coincidences. Some people call it serendipity, other people call it being lucky or a fluke. But as Christians, we believe that God is at work in these happy coincidences. When we look back on those moments, we can believe in what's called God's providence. It's a big word to say that God is guiding our lives and placing good things in our path. It's easy to believe in the providence of God when we just so happen to be at the right place at the right time. But it becomes harder to believe that when we're at the wrong place at the wrong time. Think about the, the maybe the tragic car accident. If we had been two minutes earlier or later in our commute, would it have happened? The one conversation we hadn't planned on having, which ruined a relationship. The one decision that accidentally ended our career. What is God doing in the unhappy, the dark, the unfortunate coincidences that can radically change our lives? And why does he seem absent some of the time, or at least silently hidden in those moments, the unhappy coincidences? What is God up to in the dark coincidences of our life? Well, today we're going to be exploring that question as we look at the hinge moment in the book of Esther, when we see a spark set the whole world ablaze, or to use another illustration, when one man's footstep sets off an avalanche of suffering and darkness. We're going to see Mordecai's one small act of refusal just so happens to put the entire livelihood of God's people at stake. So where is God now? So that's what we're going to be looking at, just to kind of bring us up to speed, if you missed last week or the week before, where we are. So a bit of a review, 
we are in book of Esther at a time in which God's people have been taken into exile. This is after the Babylonians came. They took God's people into exile. And since then, the Persians have come and conquered the Babylonians. So God's people are ruled over by the Persian Empire. Now, the Persians are a little bit more diplomatic, and so they allow some Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls and to build up the temple again. But there are still many Jewish people scattered across the empire. And there are some Jews who are in the very heart and epicenter of the capital of the Persian Empire. And that's what the book of Esther is about. We're introduced to Esther who is a Jewish girl who has become queen of the empire. She's married to the great king of the Persian empire. And we were also introduced to her sort of functional father named Mordecai. We saw last week how he exposed an assassination plot against the king, and he has gone down in the Persian history books. Now, if we were to stop at Esther 2, things are looking very good for God's people. I mean, they many are allowed to go back and rebuild the walls, the temple, and others who are spread out in the Persian Empire are actually rising in the ranks. I mean, Esther is queen. You could call this a comeback after the exile. But today, there's this one small spark that sets it all into question. So let's look at the spark that sets off the giant explosion. Let's read verses 1 to 4 again. It says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And so we read at the beginning of chapter 3, there's this man named Haman who is promoted in the ranks. And Mordecai is to bow down, and yet he refuses to bow down. This is the spark that sets everything off. Now, the, the natural question is, okay, well, why in the world doesn't Mordecai bow? That's the big question. And in fact, in chapter 3, Mordecai doesn't actually answer the question. He's silent. Why doesn't Mordecai bow? Now, a lot of different ideas have been posed of why it is that Mordecai doesn't bow. One option is that, you know what, Mordecai's not bowing because, I mean, think about the second commandment. We're not to make any graven image. We're not to bow down to idols. Maybe that's why he's not bowing down. But I don't think that's the case because the thing is, that was in order to not bow down to idols, graven images. But in the Bible, humans are the image of God. And in fact, we see many times in the Old Testament of God's people bowing down. We see Abraham bowing down to the Hittite leaders when he buys a a plot to bury his wife. We see Jacob bowing down to Esau. The actual act of bowing down, of showing reverence and allegiance, is not inherently sinful. I know in the West we tend to not bow down, but across the world, bowing down is still an act of respect and honor. And we wouldn't say that is wrong. So it's not that bowing down is wrong. So why is it that Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman? Well, second option, maybe Mordecai's a bit sour. (laughs) If you remember the end of chapter two last week, 
Mordecai actually saves the king's life, and he goes down in the history books. The very next verse we read, the first verse of chapter 3, and after these things, after Mordecai saved the king's life, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. Now maybe, maybe there's some sort of sour feeling that actually Haman got the promotion that Mordecai rightfully deserved. And he's just really fed up and he's refusing to bow down to his superior when he knows he should have gotten the promotion. Maybe, maybe. We, we really don't know. It's actually quite ambiguous whether or not there's any sort of sourness that Mordecai has. But thirdly, I, and I think the reason why he doesn't bow down to Haman Actually, the author gives us a giant clue why, and that's in verse 1, when we're introduced to Haman. Notice it says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. Haman the Agagite. Now, if you are a Jewish reader who is seeped in the Old Testament, you'd have giant red lights going off. Haman who? Haman the Agagite. Now, Agagite comes from King Agag. And King Agag was a notorious, brutal king from the people of the Amalekites. And throughout the Old Testament history, there's a rivalry between God's people and the Amalekite people. If you remember in the Exodus, when God's people leave Egypt, as they're leaving, guess who's the first ones to attack? The Amalekites. And throughout biblical history, we see that there's this uh, animosity between the Malachites and the Israelites. And we're even told that they will be a thorn in Israel's side. And here's this man who's a direct descendant from the most brutal king of the Amalekites, King Agag. And so when we read Haman, the Agagite, has risen in ranks in the empire, and we see Mordecai not bowing, it starts to make a little more sense. Now you might think, okay, that might be a little far-fetched, but let me prove it to you even more. The thing is, when Mordecai was introduced to us for the first time, there's something really significant said about him as well. If you look at chapter 2, verse 5, we see, we read, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now again, if you are a Jewish reader, seep in the Old Testament, when you hear Mordecai and where he comes from, Lights start going off. He's a son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now, if you were to think back in your Old Testament, in the very first king of Israel was King Saul. Now, you don't have to go there. Let me just read from 1 Samuel chapter 9 when we're introduced to the first Israelite king. From 1 Samuel 9, we read, There was a man of Benjamin whose, not, whose name was Kish the son of Abiel, the son of Zeor, the son of Bekorah, the son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul. Saul, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. We are told here in Esther, Mordecai, a son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Can you see these are representing the two great kings who fought in battle, King Agag and King Saul. And there's more that meets the eye here. It's kind of like if you've ever watched the movie Lord of the Rings and this mysterious figure called the Ranger, we find his name is Aragorn, or sorry, Aragorn, and he eventually reveals, I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn, the heir of Isildur, Elendil's son of Gondor. <laughs> There's something grand going on here, Haman the Agagite and Mordecai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. And so we see here, there's this 
sense in which Haman refuses to bow to God's enemies. And we will see that actually Haman perfectly fits his great, great, great grandfather, King Agag, as we see him not just quietly show resistance to Mordecai, but actually incite a genocide from the smallest form of insubordination. So let's look at Haman's fury that Mordecai doesn't bow. Let's read verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So they had made, so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. We see that when Haman's pride is threatened, even the littlest bit of someone not just doing the simple act of bowing down, he unleashes his fury. He is just like King Agag. However, he doesn't want to look like a murderous maniac. In verse 6, we read, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Even though he wants to kill him right now, it's beneath him to actually fulfill his desire to annihilate, annihilate Mordecai. Now, it just so happens in the story that Mordecai's co-workers tell Haman, hey, did you know he is a Jew? Now, this just adds more fuel to the fire for Haman. There's this ancient rivalry but it also gives him a political opportunity to wipe out the entire Jewish people. So we read in verse 6, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai. Now, you might think, well, if he was worried about being considered a murderous maniac, surely killing every single one of the Jewish people would definitely confirm that. What's going on here? Well, we'll see that Actually, what Haman's going to do here is actually hide his personal vendetta against Mordecai behind political reasons and agendas and actually wipe out all of the Jewish people. So let's look at the politics of how he does this as Haman comes to King Ahasuerus to present his case for the destruction of the Jewish people. In verse 7, we read, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur. That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So first, he begins by, by rolling the die to find out how are we to go ahead with this and when is this destruction to take place. It seems inconsequential, random, unguided, meaningless. He hides behind the roll of the die. Well, let's see what happens when we roll the dice. He's taking himself out of the equation even more. But secondly, we see in verse 8, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Secondly, he, he appeals to civic order. <laughs> says, King, there are these people who are everywhere, and they're different, they're difficult, and they're dangerous. They're different, they're difficult, and they're dangerous. You know, we need to unify the empire. We need to get rid of these people. We want order and law and order. We want civic order and unity. Starting to make his case. Third, we read in verse 9. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. That they may put it into the king's treasury. 
Now, 10,000 talents of silver would have been about a year's worth of taxation for the Persian Empire. That is a lot of money. We don't know exactly where Haman's getting this money, whether it's his own personal fund or whether it is basically a argument to stimulate the economy. Now, we know that wars make money. And it seems to be the same reasoning here that Haman is giving. King, if we get rid of these people, actually, it will, it will profit the economy of the Persian Empire. Okay, law and order, a better economy, making sense. It's, it's hidden behind the random chance of a die. And then finally, it's vague and bureaucratic. Hey, did you notice in verse 8, he says that there's this certain people. There's one people. Haman is so vague. He doesn't even mention it's the Jewish people. He just kind of comes to the king. Well, there's this one sort of difficult, dangerous, different people causing a stir. Let's just get rid of them, and it will actually help promote the unity of the empire. It will boost the economy. Can you see how Haman's mind is twisted and it's working? And so the king gives his secretary of state, his right-hand man, his signet ring, like a blank check and says, do what is good seems good to you. Now, at this point in the story, what is at stake is the entire biblical story with this one handing over of the signet ring of this hidden political agenda. Until now, the fear of the Jewish people would, was that they would have been taken into exile. But here, extermination is on the table. Think about it, the entire Persian Empire of the known world will exterminate every Jewish person, man, woman, child. And he hands the signet ring over to Haman. And we see the death sentence that will be forever sealed with the king's ring in verses 12 to 15. Let's read. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors and all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Now, this death sentence is given to all peoples, all governors, and all provinces. The same ones we saw in chapter 1, that the king whined and dined, he now sends out this brutal instruction to kill, destroy, and annihilate all the Jews, men, women, and children. Now, on the surface, it seems like a lot of unnecessary details here. It's just like, okay, we get it. A death sentence was given. But there's a lot of details that will come up from this edict later on when we study the book of Esther. A lot of the details are very important here. But just one thing I want to point out is when this edict is given. It is given on the 13th day of the first month. That is the month of Nisan. The 13th day of the first month. The timing of this death sentence is really malicious for three reasons. 
First reason, in the Persian and Babylonian world, numerology was a really big deal. And 13 was the cursed day. It was an evil day. And the number 13 carried that. And so when we see this edict being given out on the 13th day, there's something we're supposed to think of. You know, that's not just something that's happened way in the past and we've gotten over it. In fact, the number 13 is still held in a lot of superstition in our world today. You think of buildings, many large buildings skip the 13th floor. Why would they do that? Aren't we past all that superstition? The Friday the 13th? When I first moved into this house where I'm standing, standing in right now, I noticed something very odd, and that is we live in house number 12. The next door is house number 14. Now you might think, okay, maybe the odd numbers are on the other side. That's not the case because the two doors next to us goes 9, 10, 11, 12, 14. The thing is, even in sort of housing rentals, we're seeing that actually a lot of people won't buy a house if it's house number 13. That's just to say that in the Persian Babylonian mind, there was something evil and terrorist about this day, the 13th. So the Persian and the Babylonians, this was a loaded day. But secondly, for the Jewish people, it was even more loaded of a day because it was the day before the celebration of the Passover. It was the day before the celebration of the Passover. Passover began on the 14th in the evening at sundown. And today, the, well, the day here, the 13th, would have been the day when God's people were choosing the lamb to prepare for the feast, commemorating the liberation of God's people from an impressive tyrant, as we saw in the Exodus and Pharaoh. But ironically, here, we see Haman choosing and preparing God's people to be slaughtered and annihilated by an oppressive tyrant. The day before the great Passover feast, this edict to annihilate all the Jewish people was sent out. And third reason why this timing is so malicious is because it was sent on the 13th day of the first month, but the day for the annihilation was the 13th day of the 12th month. There's a year-long progression between the giving of the edict and the killing of God's people. Now you think, why would he give it so far and ahead? It is psychological and emotional persecution and suffering. I mean, think of what it would have been like as a Jewish person in that year leading up, knowing that all of your neighbors are going to kill and plunder your house, your home, and your family. Sort of growing anti-Semite feelings would have been happening Think about the waiting and the psychological terror knowing that there's a day coming in a year's time when everyone is going to turn on you. And we see this chapter close in verse 15, as Haman and the king sit down calmly to have a drink and all of Susa is sent as confusion. Do you see how wicked and twisted this plot is? Mordecai's one small refusal to just bend his back 90 degrees that one refusal has brought the entire livelihood of God's people into question. So what are we to make of chapter 3? Well, the principle, I think, is that when God's people refuse to bow to God's enemies, whether that be actual evil political forces and oppressors, or whether that be attitudes and values and belief, it should not be surprised that we will face unjust and unfair, seemingly meaningless and malicious persecution and suffering. In Mordecai's experience here, we see a pattern that often looks very similar to what we see in our own lives and in the lives of God's people throughout the centuries. 
Persecution and suffering often feels meaningless, like a roll of a die. People often say, I feel like I've been dealt a really bad hand in life. Persecution and suffering often feels unjust and unfair. As we see Haman, his desire for personal uh, anger turns to the whole people. It's unjust, it's unfair. When darkness comes, it often stings as if it's been carefully planned out, as we see on the 13th day, right before Passover. Seems maliciously planned. When suffering and persecution comes, it isn't always the grand acts of violence. It is often emotional and psychological, a year long of pain and confusion and fear, as we see for the Jewish people. So at this point in the story, we have no clue what to make of the story thus far. God seems silent. He seems absent. And we can't tell what he's doing now. However, to admit that we don't know what God is doing is not the same thing as saying that God isn't doing anything. I'll say that one more time. To admit we don't know what God is doing is not the same thing as saying that God isn't doing anything at all. You see this pattern we see in Mordecai, it happens over and over and over. For example, in the Gospel of Matthew, We see these wise men who come from the east as they see a star rising in the sky. And they interpret it to say that the king of the Jews is to be born. And so they head to Jerusalem. They ask where this newborn king is because they want to bow down and worship him. However, much like Haman, there's a king, King Herod, who becomes incensed that a rival might challenge him. And he devises an insidious evil plan. So he asked the wise men to show him where this Messiah is to be born so he can bow down too, even though he has a hidden political agenda. However, the wise men we know are warned and dream not to go back to Herod. And so as a result, just as Haman was willing to exterminate a whole group of people to get at one person who rivaled him, so Herod is willing to exterminate a whole group of people to get at one person who rivals him. And so like Haman, he sends out a notice for the extermination for all the male children in Bethlehem. And just like Susa was thrown into confusion, so was Bethlehem. And the attacks didn't stop with Jesus there. They continued. The Pharisees attacked him, the scribes, the Sadducees, the chief priests, ultimately plotting a way to arrest him and to put him to death. Just as Haman was willing to pay silver for the death of Mordecai, so too these leaders were willing to pay silver for the death of Jesus. And so Jesus convicted on bogus charges, just as the Jews in Persia were. Jesus was condemned at merciless hands. They beat him, they humiliated him, they put a crown of thorns on his head the day before Passover, and then they nailed him to a cross. And at the foot of the cross, the soldiers cast lots for his clothing, as if what was happening was the most inconsequential, meaningless thing they've ever experienced. And yet, at the cross, Jesus himself stood beneath the full fury of man's hatred of God, and he stood beneath the full fury of God's wrath against sin, for you and for me, to redeem, to purchase, and to buy back his enemies. Under the fury, in the darkness, Jesus was doing the most eternally significant thing that has ever been done in the universe. The cross assures us that God is with us, even when we can't feel it. 
The cross assures us that God's redemptive purposes are greater than the greatest evil being done. So as we look to faith to the cross, our hearts are filled and they're lifted up in the midst of pain so that instead of being filled with anger, they can be filled with grace and hope. Because the attacks did not stop with Jesus, they continued. Just as Haman's attacks went beyond just Mordecai to those in, in solidarity with Mordecai, so it is with the attacks went beyond Jesus to those who were in solidarity with Jesus. We see the church in the first 300 years of his existence would constantly face sporadic persecution and suffering being pushed to the edges of society. We know that the Roman emperors demanded respect and worship as divine beings. But when Christians saw that that demand was in conflict with their allegiance to Jesus, they refused to pay the honor. And the charge brought against them was treason, a political crime worthy of death. And this isn't just something that happened thousands of years ago, or even 1,000 years ago, or even 500 years ago. It continues in our world today. And historians and scholars say that actually 70% of all Christian martyrdom, 70% in all of history has happened in the 21st century. Today, over 300 million Christians are suffering persecution. One out of every seven Christians live in a country where they suffer some form of persecution. Open Doors, which is a mission we support, says that statistically, at least 11 Christians die every single day because they follow Jesus. Today, 11 people will die because they follow Jesus. And it's not just, oh, that's over there in a different world. Don't forget that persecution and suffering is often psychological and it's emotional. For us here, simple things like raising children to know and love Jesus, to trust what the Bible says about our world, ourselves, our sin, our sexuality, our need for Jesus, is now quickly being considered cruel, inhumane, and brainwashing. To use words that the church has used for its entire existence, like sin and holiness and hell and salvation, is considered twisted and demented now. Our opinions and values are quickly being disregarded because we bear the name of Jesus. There's a growing hostility against Christianity. We are being pushed to the fringes. So what should we do? Do we fight back and assert our dominance? Do we give up? What do we do? Well, I think what Esther is going to teach us is that we do not lose hope. We do not consider ourselves defeated or losing in any of those circumstances because Christ himself has won a victory for us. God often is working in those hidden, dark places, the darkest places to bring his world-transforming world grace and restoration. As Paul would say to the Philippian church, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Thus, when the attacks come, when others plot evil against us, the cross assures us that God is still working, even when we can't see it. So as we close, just want to share a short story of a Persian living thousands of years after Esther was written. And his name is Hassan Dekanti Tafti. Now, Hassan Dekanti Tafti was of Persian uh, background, and he was the bishop of Iran, which is where we find Esther living. In the 1970s, during the Iranian Revolution, he was persecuted for his faith and his political leanings. 
Intruders came into his house and shot gunshots that injured his wife. The next day, his secretary was shot, and later that week, his son was murdered because they followed Jesus. Now, you think, what do you do in that, that circumstance? Well, Tafti leads us to a place that's not either despair or anger. And so he writes this prayer that I want to finish our time with. He wrote this after the murder of his son, Barum. He says, O oh God, we remember not only Barum, but also his murderers, not because they killed him in the prime of his youth and made our hearts bleed and our tears flow, not because with this savage act they have brought further disgrace on the name of our country among the civilized world, but because through their crime we now follow thy footsteps more closely in the way of sacrifice. The terrible fire of the calamity burns up all selfishness and possessiveness in us. Its flame reveals a depth of depravity and meanness and suspicion. The dimension of hatred and the measure of sinfulness in human nature makes obvious as never before our need to trust in God's love as shown in the cross of Jesus and his resurrection. Love which makes us free from hate towards our persecutors. Love which brings patience, forbearance, courage, loyalty, humility, generosity, and greatness of heart. Love which more than ever deepens our trust in God's final victory and his eternal designs for the church and for the world. Love which teaches us how to prepare ourselves to face our own day of death. O oh God, Barum's blood has multiplied the fruit of the Spirit in the soil of our souls. So, when his murderers stand before thee on the day of judgment, remember the fruit of the Spirit by which they've enriched our lives and forgive. In persecution and suffering, we are conformed to the cross of Jesus, who hung there and said, Father, forgive them. Where is God when he seems absent? Where is God when he seems silent? I don't know in all the all the particular situations, but we also know that he is with us and he is for us. We refuse to admit that he's not doing anything. He's redeeming the world and making all things new. And he works through the same pattern he's always worked through us, and that is the pattern of the cross. As the famous psalm says, the shepherd leads us through the shadow of the valley of death, and he prepares a table in the presence of our enemies. And our cup it overflows, and he dines with us there, and he provides the bread and the wine himself. So, BRBC, as we work for the good of our town and our nation, while simultaneously refusing to bow to the things that are contrary to God, we will endure emotional, societal pressures that make us uncomfortable, painful psychological doubt and confusion and fear, and maybe suffering and persecution. So may we look to the church around the world. May we look back at this story in Esther and find confidence and comfort in our God as we accept the way of the cross. For the path of the cross leads to the victory of Easter Sunday. Well, it has been so good to be with you, church family. Miss you all so much. Um, but looking forward to our prayer night this evening at 7.30. Would be so delighted and encouraged to see you there. Again, at 7.30 tonight, love to see you there. But as we go, I thought it'd be, uh, yeah, really fitting to read a few words from the Apostle Paul who knew of this persecution and suffering. So from 2 Corinthians 6, hear these words from Paul. He says, Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put 
no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found within our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, in hardships and calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and, and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing but possessing everything. In Christ we have everything. So may we go in peace this week and may you know the peace of Jesus. Go in that peace, saints.